Today's reading is taken from 1 Kings, chapter 7, beginning at verse 51, which can be found on page 533 of the Church Bibles. 1 Kings 7, 51. When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim, The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that it brings us the truth, eternal truth, the good news of Jesus, and that it all joins up to show us a God who loves us and acts for us, each one. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know what you made of the video, but it made much clearer to me what I find hard to concentrate with in terms of lists of cedar of Lebanon, etc., etc., 
I didn't mean to say earlier that the Bible is boring, but sometimes it's, it's more demanding for you to really understand what's going on. I think the visuals there show that the temple was deliberately built to be awesome, to really honour and glorify God, the God of the covenant, the one who'd made huge promises to King David, Solomon's father. It'll be helpful if you could have page 533 open in the church Bibles, because I may just, in fact, I know I will, slip into uh, maybe an earlier chapter and then the next chapter as well, just to get full value. But it's not going to be a long talk. You've heard that before. Let's see if I can be honest and truthful. Right, so Sarah has just read for us what I think undeniably was one of the wow moments in the history of God's people. The celebrations for the opening of the temple were in around 950 before Jesus. Solomon's magnificent new temple was amazing and the celebrations were spectacular too as it was opened up, showed off, to the elders, the more senior people from the various tribes of Israel. This was what we've just read, what we've just seen, a high point in the whole of Israel's history. It must have been a bit like the Razamataz 10 years ago at the opening ceremony of the London Olympics, probably a little bit more worshipful and serious, but the same kind of bigness, a big spectacular. And it was, to be fair, directed at honouring God. So no criticism intended at all there. Solomon was the son of King David and Bathsheba. And he had already built upon King David's huge military successes, the big empire virtually that David had created. But his uh, reign was actually one of battles, of warfare, of... Um, very dicey moments. So David had established the kingdom, centered on Jerusalem in the south, and Solomon came in as his uh, son and showed that he was politically extremely savvy. He was quite entrepreneurial too, perhaps a bit different to his father. Not so much a military superstar, but a trading entrepreneurial, um, clever, and allegedly very wise king who built on his father's military successes. Solomon greatly enriched Israel. He did this through successful trading alliances with ne nearby areas such as Phoenicia, they were the great trading nation already, Arabia, Syria, Cilicia, states in North and East Africa, the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean. We sometimes forget that there was a lot of trade and a lot of travel and a lot of riches around well before uh, our last century or so. Solomon had also perhaps rather cleverly married an Egyptian princess. Now this obviously put him in the good books with Pharaoh never a bad thing to do. And he also had as, as an important, powerful ally, King Hiram, the king of Tyre. And he had a lot to do with the forced labor workforce and all the materials that ended up 
being applied to this wonderful new temple, the first ever temple for the people of Israel. Solomon was even, I didn't know this, he was a successful horse dealer and he made huge profits from this trade in Egypt to the south and the Hittites in the north. So at the time of the dedication of the temple, he was really at the high point of the history of Israel and the zenith of his own power and reputation. And the dedication of the temple was a hugely joyful moment of national achievement. God could now be worshipped in a splendid temple in which he would be specially present. That was the point of the temple, not for the temple to be worshipped, but for God to be worshipped and to be very present there. So there were psalms, there were songs, there was a lot of noise. The representatives of the people were recommitting themselves to God and to his covenant. God's promises to Abraham and David were now going to be fulfilled and his glory was going to be proclaimed to the whole world. So, you know, a sense of patriotic pride, I'm sure, but also a lot of spiritual um, goodness to the whole thing. So, what could possibly go wrong? You guessed, didn't you, the tone of my voice? Quite a lot, actually. You remember a couple of weeks ago that Ian talked about the roller coaster, the ups and downs of the people of Israel. They regularly spiralled out of control and lost their closeness to the Lord. Was Solomon, the famous and capable, powerful king, to become yet another flawed ruler? Well, let's see, but I think you probably can all guess the answer and you probably know it anyway. Solomon has always given me a very uneasy feeling. It may be the way he's written about, but you always sense that his motives may not be entirely as they should be. Was he really seeking, even at the dedication of the temple, to glorify God? Or was it mainly about himself, his family, personal and national wealth, national unity, power and reputation? I think, as with all of us, there was an element of mixed motives in there. But in fairness to Solomon, we have to acknowledge that because of him and his determination to fulfill his father's uh, intentions, the Ark of the Covenant was now set in the most holy place in the new temple. This symbolized the presence there of Yahweh, God's personal name, the one true God. Seven years it took to build this sumptuous building. And to God's glory, it was, it was fully put together. Massively impressive. Solomon had faithfully fulfilled his father's plans. But, and here we go, we're about to spiral a little bit out of control. Solomon also spent so seven years on the temple with forced labor. Solomon also spent 13 years building an even more splendid house or palace for himself. He also built a lovely palace for his Egyptian wife. So where were his priorities really? Apparently, 
Solomon was to acquire some 700 wives. Now that is beyond belief, isn't it? Poor chap, poor wives. It doesn't sound like a recipe for, for an awful lot of good things. But apparently he also had 300 concubines, so it's all a bit, a bit mind-blowing, really. He went on to, with all this foreign influence, many of these wives were from other countries, he went on to break his promises to God. The very serious promises we read on uh, in uh, chapter 8 in 1 Kings. And he leads his people astray. They go back into idolatry because of the influence partly of his wives, though he can't blame them for his own decisions and what he allowed to happen in the country. He also taxed his people excessively. He had a very good centralised administrative system and it revealed a lack of concern for the poor and actually he became quite an unpopular king after the high point of what we've just read. He ended up being grand and world famous but he wasn't popular with his own people because of the way he ruled. His life reminds us and maybe not a bad time to think of this, as we have the election coming to the end at last for the Tory party leadership. His life reminds us that any earthly wealth, glory and reputation is fleeting. They're not to be relied upon. How rich our relationship with God may be, how we bring glory to him and not ourselves, and what he thinks of us are what really matter. Whoever we are, however royal or humble, they are the things that matter. Now I'm going to move us on a little bit. You may want to just flip the page and have a look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. And in verses 22 to 66, you have Solomon's prayer of dedication. I'm going to read one verse only. At the end of all the celebrations, verse 66, the people blessed the king and then went home, joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. Great. And that end point was actually two weeks on from the beginning of the opening and the celebrations around the temple. They combined it with various feasts. So it was a two-week opening ceremony or a series of feasting going on and celebrations. We then read, if you slip into chapter 9, verse 3, that following Solomon's prayer of dedication, God himself, Yahweh, came to David and said this, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated the temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. And another but. God then issues a very stark warning to Solomon about what would happen if he did not fulfill uh, God's promises and act obediently to the covenant. He called upon Solomon in chapter 9, verse 4. 
Walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightnessness. I think I said that nearly right. Uprightness. As David your father did. Ominously, Yahweh goes on to warn King Solomon at the end of this great celebration that ridicule and disaster will follow for the people of Israel if they and their king fall short of his wishes and fall short of his promises to them. Sadly, they did. They fell short, and so did the king. They fell well short, and it may have taken 400 years, but this ridicule and disaster did come upon them. And it actually happened twice when it came to the temple. In around 587 BC, the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple. Solomon's wonderful temple was destroyed. It was rebuilt over a long period. It was called Herod's temple, the second temple. Humble at first, but then it became more and more uh, impressive. The Romans, as Jesus prophesied, came and destroyed that second temple, the temple of Herod. These were truly humiliating national disasters. And that was all because the kings, I think all but about four of the kings, and the people served other gods, didn't live in accordance with the Ten Commandments, turned away from God, from Yahweh. So it's a very sad story, and it's a story that continues and is still continuing because sin is still in the world as the devil seeks to wreck uh, all the wonders of God's goodness and his creation and his care and concern for us that we might come into his presence. Let's move on rather more positively. The presence and the glory of God what do we think of? We could have a chat uh, in, in our seats about this and it would take some time and we might have all sorts of elements that come together. But it's a word that's quite elusive, isn't it? Many clever people have tried to define what the glory of God is and it's difficult. The Bible describes it as a far brighter light than anything seen on earth. And of course, in the verses we had this morning, I'm just going to read out a few of them again, we see something of what the glory of God is like. Verse 10 in chapter 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And then Solomon got things wrong. But this idea of a cloud was, I suppose, a kind of literary way of describing the awesomeness of God being present amongst his people. And it's a common theme. Throughout the Bible, there are many references to this cloud of glory or Shekinah. These references relate to the settling or dwelling 
of the divine presence. God being very specially present. In the church, we tend to talk about those special times as the Holy Spirit being really present in power. It's the same sort of territory, way beyond our day-to-day, and even way beyond our normal services, perhaps. And there are many, many references throughout the Bible to this. Uh, In Exodus, Luke, Acts, Revelation, which talks about the New Jerusalem, It is telling that verse 11 says, I always seem to find humor in even the most serious things, but the presence of God was so overwhelming that the temple priests could not go about their duties there. So even those specially appointed for the Holy of Holies and to really make sure that the temple was as it should be, even they could not stand in God's presence They could not cope with that sense of his presence, the holiness, the sheer perfection, the power of the God of the universe, the creator of all things. They can't carry on with their work without bowing down. Have you experienced this? I have to some extent on a couple of occasions, I'm going to mention them a little bit later in our testimony slot. So I'll give you those examples. But let's just draw this to a conclusion and take out some key points. Buildings and people, both are temporary, but each can be important in bringing glory to God and bringing sinners into his presence. During the lockdowns in 2020 and 2021, I think we were all reminded that the church is truly the people. It's not just a building going to church it is the people whether it's in front of a screen on zoom whether it's going on walks out in the countryside whatever it is it is christians together the body of christ it is much more than simply a building however i'm not knocking buildings here returning to saint john's showed me that our buildings are special places the center as well as the church building here Why? I think it's because they have enabled us over the years to come close to God, enabled him to do special things for us here, God present with us. There are memories here of God's presence and of his kindness to us. So it's not really wrong, I don't think, to be blessed through and in sacred places. The church is the people, but the church buildings are to be respected too because God can use them to bring us his glory and bless us. Of course, God can bless us anywhere when we're out in the countryside in various ways, whatever it may be. But our relationship with him always depends on what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. This is not a temporary or fleeting gift. This is an eternal one. And we are called to experience the presence of Jesus in our lives day to day. What does this all mean for us in conclusion? In his prayer of dedication, this is the two chronicles account, Solomon asked God, but will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you.
how much less this temple that I have built. What an amazing insight from King Solomon in his prayer dedication. A temple can't contain the God of the universe. Buildings can't contain him. He is indescribable. He is uncontainable in the words of that song. Solomon was surely right. No earthly building, a temple, a cathedral, even St. John's, can fully reflect or constrain the mighty God of creation. Our uncontainable God, in his love for us, took on flesh and became Emmanuel, God with us. His plan is not about a place, but it's always been about a person. Jesus' glory outshines even that of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. His victory over death enables us to draw near to God today and every day. Though ascended to heaven, Jesus still dwells within his church. We are a new temple of living stones being built through the Holy Spirit into a spiritual house. That's from 1 Peter. And then, as St. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 6, God really does dwell on earth with us. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And finally, I'm going to read from our source book, the final paragraph on today's reading, which really pulls everything together for us rather well. The Bible ends with John's great vision of the new earth and the new heaven. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I did not see a temple in the city. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Revelation 2. Ultimately, it's about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No need for temples, no need for church buildings. It's about their presence with God's people. Significant as the temple is on the landscape of the biblical story, the final hope for God's people is the unmediated presence of God himself. That means we don't need priests or others in between us and God. His immediate presence is available for each one of us. And that's an eternal truth, not just a fleeting thing for good services or happy times when we feel blessed. Let's just be still and reflect on God's glory and whether we are experiencing him as we can and as we should together and individually. Let's just be still for a moment.